This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, October 4th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, the impact of the writer strike this summer was felt in Hollywood and in Arkansas. Right around the time that SAG-AFTRA began their strike, I happened to be in Los Angeles for a play reading, and so I joined the picket line at my old studio, like the old lot where I used to work. It's really funny because actually, like, on the picket line and stuff, you're introducing yourself to people around you, and they're like, you're from where? (laughs) Plus, report cards for Arkansas schools are out. What should we make of them? So compared to other elementary schools in the state, were you growing your kids at the 99th percentile or at the second percentile? And thinking about voting. I would argue it's relatively only about a 60-year-old practice uh, within our country in terms of fully uh, embracing every citizen of our country. One of the questions from our recent discussion regarding voting at John Brown University, first the news from NPR. Community Creative Center presents Pottery on the Patio, October 7th from 3.30 to 8.30 at the Walton Arts Center's Nadine Baum Studio. This event features pottery wheel and watercolor sessions. Guests can enjoy complimentary ice cream, live music from Funk Factory, and hands-on art activities. More information at communitycreativecenter.org. We've arrived at Wednesday, and this is Ozarks at Large for October 4th, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Later this hour, Molly Giles, an experienced short story writer, explains what was different about writing her novel, The Home for Unwed Husbands. She'll be at Pearl's Books in Fayetteville tomorrow. First, for Hollywood, the summer of 2023 was marked by strikes and an entertainment industry at a standstill. But outside of Hollywood, films in the natural state seem to keep rolling. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth reports. From her home in Fayetteville, Adrian Dawes sounded ecstatic and relieved over the phone in late September. This is, uh, this is exactly the kind of news you hope to have. <laughs> it's been a long fight, long strike, but um, it's great. I'm really, 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 really happy. It means I have a chance to continue working. She had just learned that morning that her union, the Writers Guild of America, had reached a tentative agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers and was finally ending its strike after 148 days. Dawes, who got her MFA from the University of Arkansas earlier this year, had just made the leap from playwright to screenwriter and was writing on a TV show in Los Angeles when the strike began. I had just joined the Guild in April, and I can tell you that even in that first writer's room, it was something everyone was talking about, like, oh, there are these negotiations that are happening. And so we were talking about a possible strike in the context of the production of our TV show. My contract ended in January, joined the Guild in April, and then by May 2nd, we're on strike, which is also around the time I was graduating. Suddenly, the direction I thought I was going just completely at a standstill. I'm like, okay, now what? There's not really a point to move to Los Angeles right now when there's no possibility of work. So Dawes settled back in Fayetteville to wait out the strike. It's not like there are picket lines around here. Uh, from time to time, they'd have these phone banking sessions. And um, so that was one of the ways I was able to contribute. And then right around the time that SAG-AFTRA began their strike, I happened to be in Los Angeles um, for a play reading. And so I joined the picket line um, at my old studio, like the old lot where I used to work. It was really funny because actually like on the picket line and stuff, you know, you're introducing yourself to people around you and they're like, 
you're from where? <laughs> How did you get staffed on your first job from Arkansas? Like that blew people's minds. Now she says the plan is to hopefully secure another writing job. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really make a move until I have a job in, in any field. And so that's kind of what the focus is, is to find a job and then um, most likely move out to L.A., but either L.A. or New York. It kind of feels like um, that's that's where I have the most possibility for my career to continue to expand. And so that's what I'm interested in. But she stresses the struggle isn't over yet. The Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, or SAG-AFTRA, is still on strike, which means films and TV production for anything involving actors is still at halt. Barry Clifton is an actor living in Little Rock. You may have seen him on some blockbuster productions like the Paramount Plus juggernaut Yellowstone. Now more than ever that we double down, we go back into negotiations today. Our negotiating committee is meeting with AMPTP as we speak. So I hope that they're earnest in wanting to achieve a, an equitable arrangement that will uh, you know, allow uh, for a middle class uh, working actor to, to, to make enough living where they don't have to have a side job. You know, they can work a half dozen jobs a year and make enough on residuals to, uh, to sustain the tremendous amount of expense that's involved in being an actor. With self-tapes, you have to have a, a, you know, cameras and lights and headshots and acting classes. and uh, It's just an inexpensive career to pursue. Clifton is a union member and on the board of the Dallas branch of SAG-AFTRA, which covers parts of Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. He spoke to us as an individual, not as a representative of the union. He says being a professional actor in Arkansas can be tough. The opportunities are few and far between. But he believes this strike has helped shine a light on working actors like him, not just the most famous. And then even when you mention the SAG minimum for a project with a budget of $2 million or more, the daily minimum was $1,086. And that's a lot of money for one day's work. But you consider that I had a really good year last year and I worked on three productions, you know, and, and just two or three days on each one. So that, that's not much annual income. That's why residuals are so very important. But he says for the Arkansas film industry, the struggle in Hollywood has actually had somewhat of a silver lining. Most of the productions here are smaller independent productions that are not uh, connected with AMPTP. Uh, there is some delay. Uh, of course, there's a tremendous backlog of uh, uh, SAG-AFTRA approving productions for the interim agreement. But I know of uh, you know, the, the film that I worked on. There was another film that shot here last week with Alec Baldwin that received the interim agreement. And I know of three other films that have already been approved for casting for the interim agreement. This interim agreement has been a lifeline for the industry. Most of the films produced here in Arkansas are independent features, not tied to major Hollywood studios. Christopher Crane, Arkansas's film commissioner, says the strike has not disrupted film production very much here because of the interim waivers. Uh, in which, you know, SAG was said, hey, you know, you know, we know that you're not tied to a major, you know, network studio. And so, uh, you know, we'll allow you to go into production on this since you've already, you know, begun pre-production. And so we, we feel like there will be some larger projects that are still out there that, that will finally come to fruition once both strikes are over. 
but in the meantime, you know, we're, we've got our heads down and our elbows out and can continue to work. And that film Clifton mentioned starring Alec Baldwin and Terrence Howard called Crescent City wrapped filming in September in Little Rock. Another of those new productions, which is coming to Northwest Arkansas later this month, is produced, written, and directed by John Michael Powell. Powell is an Arkansas native, but says more producers are looking outside of Hollywood to make their films, and Arkansas has the chance to capitalize on that. So, like, for a place like Arkansas, we've found, um, you know, the crew base here is really solid. And so, like, we've been able to hire so many people locally. And for every one of those hires we make locally, you know, that's pennies on the dollar back to us through incentive. So that's the thing that really gets, you know, producers leaving the big cities to come to smaller. And, and, you know, beyond that, I mean, we're ignoring, we're talking business, but we're ignoring a massive, you know, elephant in the room here. And that's the creative. And like, so really it's about the more creative stories you see from these towns and from these places like Arkansas, the more those stories become, you know, part of our cinematic lexicon and people will yearn for those stories more and more. So um, it's, it's kind of a big snowball that gets rolling downhill. And in, for Arkansas, in my opinion, it's starting to roll downhill really quickly. Still, Powell says it took several months, nearly since the start of the strike in June, to get that waiver and start casting for his film. We applied for a SAG waiver the day they opened. We were ready to go, and but sat on our hands for two months waiting on SAG to give us a waiver. And so we were just stuck. Um, and then suddenly at the 11th hour, two weeks ago, SAG came through and gave us our waiver. And then it was suddenly, oh my God, we have four weeks to cast this entire movie. Carrie Elder, a producer with Rock Hill Studio based out of Fayetteville, says filming is still going on in the region, but the strike has definitely delayed production while producers line up to secure those coveted waivers. Two of them um, were, still don't have their waiver, so they've been pushed for uh, ever since the strike started, uh, the SAG, SAG strike. Uh, they, were, they had their script, so the writers' strike did not affect projects that were ready to go as much as the SAG strike has. And while the strikes have brought the Arkansas film industry into focus locally, most of the filmmakers and producers here say the real barrier to growing the industry is to put better tax incentives in place. Really, if you want a, if you want a healthy film ecosystem, that's the first step. Out-of-town producers, lots of data proving this and, and the, lots of studies done in New Mexico and Georgia and Louisiana, 90 to 95% of producers choose a location based on the film incentive. And wherever producers can get the best film incentive with the most resources, um, that's, that's where they choose to film. That's Catherine Tucker with the Arkansas Cinema Society. She says the state got a step closer to improving incentives in August when the new Act 517 went into effect. The law increases incentives from 20 to 25 percent and gives the film companies an added 5 percent tax credit or rebate for productions in economically distressed areas. And while there is some internal disagreement about the way the law is set up, everyone in the industry agrees that when it comes to competitive tax incentives, there's room for improvement. Here's Carrie Elder again. There's a lot of people, I would say 150 to 250 people that make their living in, living in this industry, in the creative industry. So to me, that's the, that's the, that's the thing I'm, I'm, I worry about, and that's what I hope 
that we can uh, help this administration and the legislature to understand that they're going to have to go somewhere else to work. They can't work consistently here. In the wake of these strikes, Catherine Tucker says she's optimistic about the future of Arkansas film, and her goal is to bring in more consistent work. We have a great group of crew to crew up a a smaller ND feature, but I would like to see a more robust crew base for larger features so that we could start attracting larger budgets so that crew can get paid what they are worth. So what will it take to bring in those larger productions? Barry Clifton says people need to start turning out to see those homegrown films. You know, word of mouth uh, amongst directors and, and, and cinematographers and, and producers and so forth, get that word spread that it's a wonderful uh, place to work. And Clifton's latest film, The Memo, premieres at Filmland, Arkansas in Little Rock this weekend. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. And two celebrated filmmakers will be part of the 2023 Filmland in Little Rock this month. Oscar-nominated Michael Shannon, known for his acting roles in movies like Mud and Revolutionary Road, will screen his directorial debut, Eric LaRue. That's going to take place at Ron Robinson Theater on Saturday, October 14th. After the screening, there will be a Q&A session hosted by Jeff Nichols, the director of several films, including Mud and Loving. You can find the entire itinerary for Filmland, hosted by the Arkansas Cinema Society at filmland.org. And what stories do the latest grades for Arkansas schools tell us? There's several components that make up the grade. One is how students performed on the state assessment. So are kids meeting grade level, exceeding grade level, below grade level on these tests in reading and math? We'll learn more about how to decipher those grades in about five minutes on today's show. A big source of climate warming emissions is the shipping industry. Under pressure to move goods and clear the air, some ships are getting a boost from the wind. You have this wing that is composed of three elements, right? So it's, it's very close to what you see on an airplane. Building a climate solution from established tech on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Start your day tomorrow with Morning Edition, starting at 5. All four Arkansas members of the U.S. House of Representatives voted to keep Congressman Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. McCarthy, however, didn't get enough votes to keep the job. Arkansas's 3rd District Congressman Steve Womack was the representative who announced the result. The yeas are 216. The nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. All five of Oklahoma's members, all Republicans, also voted to keep McCarthy. Tom Cole from Oklahoma's 4th District spoke in favor of keeping the Speaker. Think long and hard before you plunge us into chaos because that's where we're headed if we vacate the Speakership. Former Arkansas governor and current candidate for the GOP presidential nomination, Asa Hutchinson, wrote on social media, the vote to remove McCarthy as speaker was a gift to Democrats. There are several Arkansas connections to the latest Forbes list of richest Americans. The magazine released its annual compilation yesterday. Forbes places Jim Walton and family, 
Rob Walton and family, and Alice Walton at 12th through 14th, respectively, on the list. Forbes writes that Crystal Bridges founder Alice Walton is the wealthiest woman in the country. Jerry Jones, a native Arkansan and owner of the NFL's Dallas Cowboys, is listed in the top 50 richest Americans. The youngest person in the 2023 rankings is 37-year-old Lucas Walton, grandson of Walmart founder Sam Walton and the son of late John Walton. Janelle Hunt is listed at number 249. Elon Musk, with an estimated net worth of $161 billion, tops this year's Forbes 400. To make the list this year, a person's net worth had to be at least $2.9 billion. Not on that list. Not on or Matthew Moore. Or anyone in public radio. That's right. Arkansas's tax surplus is slightly lower than at this time last year, but still above forecast. The Arkansas Department of Finance Administration reports total Arkansas tax revenue in the first fiscal quarter of 2023 was just more than $2 billion, down 1.1% compared to the first fiscal quarter of 2022, but nearly 7% above the forecast. An educator at Hellstern Middle School in Springdale is the recipient of the Milken Educator Award. Michael Tapey is a math and computer science teacher for 6th and 7th graders and is also the co-creator of the school's robotics team. The award also includes a $25,000 cash prize. He is the first educator to receive the Milken Award this school year, with more than 60 educators across the country joining him later this year. Trail runners can join the Peel Compton Foundation at the Kohler Bike Preserve for the Here's Johnny 10K at 8 a.m. this Saturday. The race will take participants into the Kohler Woods through parts of the Here's Johnny Mountain Bike Trail. All runners will receive a finisher medal and a t-shirt, and all proceeds go back to the Peel Compton Foundation's mission to connect communities through nature. You can register now for $40 at racewizard.com. The runner-up in that race should be the Heyo winner. Yes. <laughs> Outdoor Fayetteville is hosting a backcountry cooking clinic at the Yvonne Richardson Community Center tomorrow night beginning at 5 p.m. The event is open to all ages, and Outdoor Fayetteville provides the equipment and training. All you need to bring is your appetite. You can visit their website for registration information about future events. The University of Ozarks, the State Game and Fish Commission, and the City of Ozark are partners in a project to build a new Olympic-style sports shooting facility in Clarksville. A press release from U of O officials estimates the construction cost at about $13 million. The facility would be located on a 140-acre parcel owned by the university just south of Interstate 40 and have opportunities for public use. The University of the Ozarks has fielded collegiate shooting teams since 2010. And the 13th-ranked Razorback Volleyball team will have its first road SEC match of the season tonight. Arkansas is in Baton Rouge for a match with LSU. The Razorbacks have won their first three conference contests, all played in Barnhill Arena. This is Ozarks at Large. Letter grades for Arkansas schools, as assigned by the Arkansas Department of Education, have been released. The 2023 report shows nearly three-fourths of Arkansas schools earned the same letter grade as the previous year. 14.5% earned a higher grade and about 14% earned lower grades. We asked Sarah McKenzie, the Executive Director of the Office for Education Policy at the University of Arkansas, to help us understand what to make of the grades from A to F for the schools. Schools are given a letter grade between A to F based on how their students performed in the prior year. 
I know from experience that when I would show my parents perhaps a C in algebra, I would, you know, explain, well, it's actually better than the D that it was about to be. I'm showing improvement. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if they always bought it, but I would try to massage letter grades. What should we get from looking at these grades? So they were intended to be an easily understood indicator of school quality for the public. So you know if your kid's going to an A school or a C school. But just like with your grade that you got in algebra, there's really more to it than just this one picture of how your school is doing or how you were doing in algebra. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you were trying very hard, Kyle. So um, there's several components that make up the grade. One is how students performed on the state assessments. So are kids meeting grade level, exceeding grade level, below grade level on these tests in reading and math? A second part is growth, which is how much students in the school improved Mm -hmm. from the prior year on these tests. And all kids can grow. Even if you were getting a super high A in algebra, we would still want you to be making improvement and not just resting on that A. So to me, that's the most important measure is how much kids are growing in the school. And then the last measure is a measure of school quality, which includes a bunch of different things like chronic absenteeism and kids reading on grade level and science scores and a bunch of stuff like that. So the first one is achievement, which is highly correlated with the socioeconomic status of the kids that attend the school. If you have kids coming to school well-resourced, they're going to be much more likely to do well on those tests than kids that are coming to school with less resources from home. And when you say those tests, those are standardized tests. Standardized tests across the state, grades 3 through 10 in uh, English language arts and math. So growth, though, is not very correlated with the backgrounds of kids at the school. So you can have schools that serve very few disadvantaged kids demonstrating high growth, and then you can have schools that have almost all kids experiencing disadvantages at home or outside of school that have very high growth. So for me, that's the best indicator of if your school is really doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is teaching all kids all day, every day. So if I'm a parent or or just a concerned community member, how do I track that growth? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So the growth values that are reported, so you can find this information either on My School Info, which is the state department website, and you can download the report for your school, or you can go to my website, which is oep.uark.edu, and we have a file that shows all the schools in the state so you can see how your school is doing compared to how other schools are doing. Um, The growth values range really just from 70 to 90, so that seems a very small difference. So what we do is split it out into sort of give each school a ranking on that. So compared to other elementary schools in the state, were you growing your kids at the 99th percentile or at the second percentile? So parents can get that at oep.uark.edu, and it makes it a little easier to interpret what those values really mean. What for the schools that had failing or near-failing grades? 
Yes. So in general, letter grades were very similar across the state to last year's. Mm -hmm. The percentages of A's were the same. The percentages of F's were very similar and everything in between. For schools that had F's last year, under the LEARNS Act, parents this year could use some of the money that was going to their kids' traditional public school and take it to pay for tuition in another private school. So these are sometimes called vouchers. In Arkansas, we call this process that we're heading into education freedom accounts. And the idea is that if your student is going to a failing school, the state is giving you a different option for what kind of school you would like your kid to go to. You don't have to do that, Mm -hmm. but you have the option to do it. This year, that includes D schools too. So if your student's school got a D or an F, you have the opportunity to next year use some money for tuition at a non-public school. But I can't use that if there is a, say I'm in a town with more than one elementary school. That elementary school has a D or an F for the second consecutive year. I couldn't use that freedom account to go to the other elementary school in in my, or I, can I? So public school. If it's another public school, it's free. You can oh, just right. switch. You, I can switch. Right. I got yes. you. I got you. You can. There's there are opportunities for parents to move within public schools or to go to a public charter school, which is also free. This is a new thing in that I it's see. you can access a private school. What if my school has had consecutive Fs? Then I get a C, for for instance. Then does that student? that transferred out, are they required to come back to my school or do we know? No, they are not required to come back to your school. So this year, last year it was F schools. This year it's D and F schools. And then next year it's everybody at every school. Even if your student is going to an A-rated school, you have the opportunity to use those resources. And we call them education freedom accounts, or the governor does, because you have freedom to choose. Right. You may want to take that money and use it for homeschooling your child. You may want to take that money and use it for a private school. You may want to use it for a micro school, like lots of different options. It doesn't just have to go to the private schools once it's fully implemented. All right. Let's say I'm a parent and I see that the grade at my child's elementary or middle or junior high school isn't what I want it to be, but I'm not really interested or have the resources. You know, I I might live in a rural place where there is no other place within driving distance, reasonably so. I've asked you this before. What's my best option to make sure my school does improve and my child gets the education I want her or him to get? That's an excellent question. And even if your school is getting a lower grade than you would like and you do have the resources, you may want them to stay in that school because that's a part of your community and that's where their friends are. And so that's a choice that you get to make. So if your school is not performing at the level that you would like it to – I think the first step is to go and talk to the principal and see what they think the challenge is and ask them if there's ways that you can help support. Um, Do they need resources for um, after-school reading programs for kids? Do they need um, parent volunteers to help give the teachers a break on some of their activities? Do they need community members to sort of come together to develop a education foundation that can 
provide additional resources to the school. I think the most important thing that parents and community members can do is really pay attention to what the grades are and think about the ways that they can partner to support their local school. Do you see the grades getting represented by school districts the way they should be? So sometimes schools are both high achieving and demonstrating high growth. So Root Elementary in Fayetteville is an example of one of those schools. It serves few economically disadvantaged kids, has very high achievement, and has very high growth. Sometimes that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we find high-achieving schools where the kids do well on the tests, but they aren't really demonstrating that much growth. Or alternatively, sometimes we find schools like John Tyson in Springdale that serves a highly disadvantaged population, maybe doesn't score as well on the state tests, but is making tremendous amounts of growth that they're in the top percentile for elementary schools in this state. So kind of like your letter grades in your high school classes were, some of it's performance on tests Mm -hmm. and some of it's sort of doing your homework and demonstrating your learning and developing growth. So parents need to look into each of those. But yes, my office really focuses on the growth of students in the schools and we'll be releasing our OEP awards, which are to the schools demonstrating outstanding educational performance throughout the state. And Ours, we break out into sort of reading and math because sometimes schools are really great at teaching math and other times they're really great at teaching reading and sometimes they're great at both. I think we want to think about, in terms of overall achievement, um, about 25% of our elementary schools in Northwest Arkansas are in the top 10% in the state for achievement. 30% of middle schools and 34% of our high schools are in that top 10% for performance on state tests. Now, when we look at growth, it's a little higher for elementary schools. We have 28% of our elementary schools in the top 10% of the state for growth, 22% of our middle schools, and 16% of our high schools. So our high schools in general are demonstrating better achievement, but relatively lower growth than other high schools in the state. And sometimes people say, well, our kids are already so high performing. How can they possibly grow? But all kids can grow, and you can see evidence of this like in the Haas Hall schools where they're very high achieving and also showing high growth. Or like I mentioned, Root Elementary, very high achieving, very high growth. So in general, our schools are doing really, really well. There's always room for improvement, and there's always opportunities for parents and community members to provide additional support or connection with their public schools. And ultimately, isn't don't we want a rising tide lifting all boats? Don't we want all schools? I mean, it's great to have, I guess, a bit of competition and this one's doing better, but isn't it best for the state that they're all doing better? Yes. It's definitely best for the state that they're all doing better. And it's interesting right now in education because there's all these policy changes going on with the LEARNS Act. A lot of them are focused on early literacy and getting kids to be able to read in the early grades. But we're also changing our test. Mm -hmm. So we've been taking the same test for seven years. Next year, we're going to be taking a completely different test. So we don't quite know how this is all going to change when the assessment changes. But growth will persist. It will always be 
able to be calculated regardless of this test or that test. We'll be able to see which schools are growing kids sure. the most. Sir McKenzie, thank you so much for explaining this. We're going to have you back as these things. And and, and and where can people find the grades? oep.uark.edu. And if you look for letter grades is where you'll be able to find it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sarah McKenzie is the executive director of the Office for Education Policy at the University of Arkansas. This is Reflections in Black, and I'm your host, Raven Cook. Reflections in Black is a segment dedicated to considering the legacy of black Americans in the United States and around the globe. Each episode has been carefully designed to lead you to wonder, encourage you to research, and support you in ways to use new knowledge to make a difference in our world. Our first step starts here and now with the new episode of Reflections in Black. I rarely think about future in terms of society. I think about it as an individual. In the future, I want to teach black history to as many people as I can. In the future, I want a home filled with love and security. In the future, I want to take my parents to West Africa. You know, stuff like that. Perhaps I don't think about the future of black people as much because I'm focused on our collective past. I guess I've always understood liberation not necessarily as something in front of me without understanding what was behind me. So recently, when I saw a TikTok of a group of black creators posing a question about black futures, I paused. The TikTok creator, Charles Conyers, developed a short film called The People Beneath the Clouds, and he cited the work of N.K. Jameson, who wrote How Long Till Black Futures Month. Jameson's work centered around the unique question, where were the black and brown people in the Jetsons? There are none. There is an animated show that other black creators have pointed out called Rickety Rocket, which aired in 1979 to 1980. And while they were characters and had a place in the sky, it was nowhere near the type of lifestyle the Jetsons had. The People Beneath the Clouds short film and N.K. Jamison's writing pointed out a very important thing to me. Black people need to think about the future as much as the past to have a future. One person who thought about the future a lot was Octavia Butler. Octavia Estelle Butler was born in 1947 in Pasadena, California. Her career began at California State University and continued to the University of California at Los Angeles. Her first novel, Pattern Master, was written in 1976 and continued to what is noted as the Patternist series of books, including Mind of My Mind in 1977, Survivor in 1978, Wild Seed in 1980, and Clay's Ark in 1984. The books center around telepathy, but also present strong ideas about identity. In 1993, Butler would write one of her most well-known works, Parable of the Sower, and be highlighted by the New York Times for its notable book award. And in 1995, her star continued to rise with the book Parable of the Talents. That book would secure her as a science fiction noted author and she would also receive the MacArthur Genius Award in 1995. 
Butler continued writing until her death in 2006. But after her death, Octavia Butler's work would become part of a movement in literature. Many black women sat with her books during the COVID-19 pandemic shutdowns as the themes of the books dealt with contemporary issues of the day. Octavia Butler saw a future with black women in it and wrote us into the pages of that literary future. In a world asking what is next, perhaps we could start by ensuring that futures have place for all people. How will you think more about a future that is inclusive? Maybe it's registering voters, or maybe it's working with the youth. Either way, we must continue to think about the legacy of tomorrow and the narratives about people the future brings all of us collectively forward. Until next time, peace. This is Ozarks at Large. Molly Giles is a professor emerita at the University of Arkansas and the author of the novel The Home for Unwed Mothers. Giles is typically a short story writer, and she says the difference between writing short stories and writing a novel for her is the patience she has with the characters. A lot of the people in my short stories just frankly aren't very pleasant, um, and I wouldn't want to stay with them much longer than 20 pages. Uh, but in the novel... People were so much more complex, and I was far more, I was just more interested, let's put it that way, and perhaps more nosy. I wanted to know more about them. Um, so, yes, it was a question of interest and patience. Do you find yourself having a hard time with the creation of characters, or is that something that comes pretty natural to you? Well, I don't have to make much up. There's a lot of, I have a large Irish family, most of whom are not talking to me right now um, and won't, especially after they finish reading this book. But most people are sort of there for the taking, you know, (laughs) and I'm interested in their quirkiness and um, everybody changes totally when I write about them, but I often will start with a with a model in mind that will change totally in the um, process of trying to understand that person, it will change. I've made quite a few characters up out of whole cloth, um, but for the most part, they're they're on the street. They're walking by the house right now. They're they're here. I'm I'm interested in observing people. Your latest novel is called uh, The Home for Unwed Husbands. The protagonist is a woman named Kay. How would how would you describe Kay? Well, Kay is sort of a throwback. She's not a what I would call a modern woman in that she is not um, empowered, as they say today. She's she's um, passive. She's submissive. Uh, she is tender-hearted, which makes her, in many cases, well, almost always weak. She um, she accommodates people. 
rather than standing up for her own needs. So even though I think women have progressed beyond that, there is that strain in all of us, men and women too, but primarily in women to, um, well, as Bob Dylan says, you got to serve somebody. Um, you know, there's a there's a tendency to put yourself second. And that is that is really Kay's, Kay's big problem. Yeah, one of the things that really fascinates me about Kay is that she's an addict, but she's almost addicted to being addicted to things, if that makes sense. <laughs> and that, that's something that re- it, it really resonates in a lot of what she does and a lot of the people that she finds herself surrounded by as well. Right. Um, I was asked once, you know, what what song would accompany this book? And uh, that <laughs> that bouncy little tune from Oklahoma came to mind. I'm just a girl who can't say no. <laughs> and that really is, is Kay's, Kay's problem, except she's not cheerful about it the way Addie Ann or whatever the, the woman's name was who sang that in Oklahoma, who was very happy not to say no. But it's not fun for, for Kay. But she says, yes, anyhow. And then resents it terribly. <laughs> One of the other things that sticks out to me about her is is that depending on the environment, she can we do see some changes. And in many relationships, she is pretty subservient. She's not put together at all, and she tries to prove how much of a grown up she is, especially in in relation to her father. But in others, she's more of a fixer, and she's like the adult making the decision and has to be the adult in the room, even if she's doing it in a passive way. What holds these two personalities together as one person for her, do you think? I think with her with her father, she's more of a child. I mean, I, there there are times when I think there's one part where she literally feels herself shrink, um, and she can't. Um, she gets shorter when she's around her father. She she goes back to she reverts, and she can't help it. Um, she needs to be able to stand up to him. But she is also a mother. She has an eleven year old child, and um, but I think all of us have that <laughs> child parent adolescent, uh, sixth grader, unfortunately, still alive and screaming inside us. So Kay has to manipulate those different those different parts. As I have become an adult, one of the strangest things is having to have a, uh, uh, a co-adult relationship with your parents, um, that, it, that it can be really hard to explain to your parents, I'm a grown-up that has adult things that I have to do and I have a job and I have all of these requirements that I I can't just answer to your beck and call like I did when I was a child. That seems to be something that is perpetually hard for parents to understand. And it's portrayed in this book really well, too. I, I read once a description of mental health, and it said a definition of mental health is when you think of your parents as an older couple that you enjoy spending time with. Very, very clear. Now, I don't know if that is true for parents' mental health, having a child that they enjoy spending time with and not, you know, asking why they came in so late or why they're wearing that. Or my parents have both passed away and I often go to their their graveside with the flowers and um, I stand there in front of the crypt and I lie to them. I brag. You know, I say how well everything is going. I, I tell, you know, I, I lie about my children. I lie about everything. I just say, oh, everything's fine. No worries. We're just doing great. The same way I used to. 
So when is that going to end? You know. <laughs> well, what about your relationship with 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 your children? Is do you see do you see elements of that in in how they relate to you? They're so much smarter than I am. I have three daughters, and I feel like um, at this point in my life, I feel like I'm their child. They're they're watching out for me much more than I'm watching out for them. So yes, they're they're I long outgrew the, the position of being the boss, which I you know I miss it, but it's gone. I imagine that that you and I hold a common bond, and that listening to radio and and reading books is often a solitary experience that's done outside of the creator's line of vision. Does it bring a different sense of joy getting to read the book and see readers in person at events? Well, there's always a pleasure when when people laugh at the right time, and there's always that uh oh when they don't. And um, I remember when um, David. Sidaris came to Arkansas years ago, and he's very funny reader, but he kept a pen and pa- paper on the podium by him. And he took notes when people responded to things or when they didn't. And I thought, wow, what a great idea, because he gave so many talks in many different places, but he was sort of, you know, testing the water, so to say. And and uh, I appreciated that. But yes, it brings out the ham in you uh, when you are a pretty closed down person as I am. I'm quite a introvert. And then you get up in front of an audience and a monster is born. I become a real ham. I have a wonderful time. You can't drag me off. And um, I'm sick all the day before. And I'm usually just sick with shame the day after. But yes, there is definitely, definitely a change. Molly Giles is the author of The Home for Unwed Husbands. She'll be reading at Pearl's Books in Fayetteville tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Chicago artist designed the coin created to celebrate the centennial of Arkansas statehood. Edward Everett Burr was born in Ohio in 1895, but was raised in Paragold. As Arkansas prepared to celebrate its 100th birthday, Burr won a contest to design a half-dollar marking the event. However, on July 27, 1924, the United States Commission of Fine Arts disapproved the design because of unsuitability for a coin of the United States. Burr altered his design, combining profiles of a Native American and Lady Liberty on the back while the front featured an eagle and an Arkansas flag, an image later used on a coin honoring Senator Joe Robinson. Tens of thousands of the Centennial coins were sold at a premium, raising funds for the Arkansas Centennial Commission. Burr continued his career as a successful commercial artist in Chicago, while also teaching art at the University of Illinois' Navy Pier and Urbana-Champaign campuses. He died in Memphis in 1986. To learn more, visit Arkansas.net. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, examining Arkansas accents. Everybody has an accent because everyone is from somewhere and you don't have to sound a certain way to be smart. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich speaks with the creator of a new documentary film about the way Arkansans talk. It's tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. The Smithsonian exhibit Voices and Votes, Democracy in America can be viewed on the campus of John Brown University through October 20th. The night before the exhibit opened to the public, JBU, KUAF, and Ozarks at Large partnered for a panel discussion about voting and democracy. That panel included Delia Hawk, state representative for District 17, Dan Bennett, associate professor of political science and assistant director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing at JBU, Chris Seawood, corporate and institutional giving manager at Theater Squared, and treasurer of the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council, and Yamil Tenorio, 
an integrated marketing communications major at JBU, who has served as copy editor for the JBU Lantern. Over the next few days, we'll hear highlights from that conversation, beginning with excerpts from answers to my first question that night. When I asked panelists about their initial thoughts about voting and democracy, we'll hear first from Professor Dan Bennett. It's important for us to recognize uh, that for most of human history, uh, we have not picked our representatives. We have not had a say in our government. It was whoever had the largest army, the biggest sword, uh, they were in charge. So this was a relatively new phenomenon. It is still, 200 plus years later, a relatively new phenomenon. We've had some models uh, from history, whether it's in, in, uh, in the Roman Senate or in uh, more traditional Greek democracy or something like this, but uh, certainly the framers uh, had no shortage of things to draw from, but they were certainly unique in trying to put those ideas to practice. We often think of self-interest, especially maybe even here on this campus, as being a bad thing. But I'm wondering, and you may not want to show your hands, but I hope that there were some professors here on campus that would have given extra credit if you came tonight. Is anybody here tonight getting extra credit for being here? Look at that, all right, way to show up. JBU faculty, hey, because that's effort. They are rewarding your meritocracy with effort. I used to teach basic econ here, and one thing we did to teach economics was to get everybody the average grade of the class at midterm. Would you like to have the average grade of your class at midterm? Not unless you were failing, right? You didn't really want to give your A grade when you studied hard and, and went to class and put all that effort into getting an A or a B and then share it with someone who blew it off and never went to class or studied. Now you might want to help someone that had an illness or family emergency or something, but the idea of earning and then keeping what you um, have a right to personal, your person and property. That was new also in our country. And so being here tonight, I just wanna say is a foundation of a lot of what we're going to be talking about in terms of rights and the right to vote. What are we voting for? We're voting to protect the interests of each other, ourselves, our person, our property, but also of our neighbors. And so I just kind of wanted to make that point and realize that it's a good thing if you're working hard and being in class and that you get rewarded for your efforts. Um, but a lot of that relates to how our government also works and why in a democracy, every individual counts. Great opening statements from my colleagues, um, but it also is important, I think, to remember that in the framing of our country that this democracy that we're talking about, that there were people that were not included in this equation um, that we're talking about. So um, as important as democracy is for our country, um, the true practice of it, um, even in its 200 year practice is still a relatively, within the 200 years is still a relatively new uh, practice for our country. Um, I would argue it's relatively only about a 60-year-old practice uh, within our country in terms of fully 
uh, embracing every citizen of our country, i.e. African Americans, women, um, uh, etc. So the experiment, as wonderful as its intent may have been, um, is still an ongoing experiment, not fully embraced fully as the framers um, uh, intended. Um, those are my initial thoughts. Thank you. Um, I'm sure I'll have more to say as the night goes on. Yeah, Stay tuned. And finally, Emil, you've probably voted the fewest times of anybody involved in tonight's uh, discussion. I'd be interested to hear your initial thoughts when you were asked to be part of a panel talking about voting. Yes, thank you for having me as well. So when I was reached out for this opportunity, I was halfway across the world in Jordan, and we were doing our morning digs. We were going to bed at 9 p.m. to wake up at 4.30 in the morning. And one of, when, when I was reached out for this opportunity, I thought about the area that I was, li that I was living in for two months. The Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan is not a democracy. It is a kingdom. And so when, even though I was halfway across the world, I was still thinking about voting and being able, the ability to have the ability to vote, um, even though I'm halfway across the world, kind of resonated in recent days as I just asked for my absentee ballot from the state of Pennsylvania, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. <laughs> and so um, voting has been really, really important for me. Um, at least as long as I've been able to, I have voted even in the off-year elections. I voted in last year's midterm elections as well. And so I am taking advantage of something that, you know, people that I was living with day in and day out just simply do not have. And so that's just my initial thoughts about voting right now. Emil Tenorio is a student at John Brown University and was a panelist last month for a discussion about voting and democracy. The conversation took place on the JBU campus the night before the public opening for the traveling Smithsonian exhibit, Voices and Votes, Democracy in America, that's currently on the JBU campus. You can view that exhibit through October 20th. We also heard from State Representative Delia Hawk. Chris Seawood with the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council, and Dan Bennett, Associate Professor of Political Science and Assistant Director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing at JVU. We'll hear more from the panel throughout the rest of the month on Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Raven Cook, Jack Travis, and Mark Chris. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Matthew produced the program today inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Tomorrow I'll be joined by Timothy Dennis. We'll be talking tunes. We'll be talking sound perimeter. Lots of great stuff for you on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. Until then, from the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellens. Thanks so much for being with us. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville invites guests to discover American art, architecture, and 120 acres of Ozark nature. Visitors can also enjoy family activities and programs and a variety of food and drink experiences. General admission is always open to the public. More information at crystalbridges.org. 
The Momentary in Bentonville presents international pop artist Rina Sawayama with Express and Disco Cowboy Saturday, October 6th. Celebrating her newest album, Hold the Girl, this concert is part of The Momentary's Live on the Green concert series. Tickets at themomentary.org.